Before penicillin was discovered in the 20th century, young children were often ravaged by meningitis, scarlet fever, and even the chickenpox. All too often, these rampant illnesses left children without their eyesight or hearing. In the 1800s, there were proportionately thousands more deaf and blind Americans than there are today, and yet the public's general attitude was unfortunately quite different. Persons with disabilities could expect a life without opportunities for education or employment. They were often exiled into poverty in dark, overcrowded asylums. But two people, Helen Keller and Alexander Graham Bell, would strive to change that. Together, the unlikely pair devoted their lives to advocating on behalf of the blind and deaf, using their respective platforms, Keller leading by example, and Bell through his teaching work, they challenged and reimagined the expectations of what a blind or deaf person could achieve. Bell's renowned reputation as an inventor created an opportunity to bring Keller to fame. But it was Keller's fierce determination that enabled her to overcome the limitations others put upon her. Wielding her talents as a writer and performer, she would use her story to change the nation's understanding of disability. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Carter Roy. And this is Obituaries, a Spotify original from Parcast. Over the next 10 episodes, we're looking at unlikely pairs, giants in their respective fields, who left a deep and lasting impression on the world and each other. Some of these pairs considered themselves allies, some partners, and some bitter rivals. But in every case, their monumental legacies are inextricably intertwined. In this episode, we'll explore the friendship and legacies of Alexander Graham Bell and Helen Keller. The lesser-known aspect of the inventor was his reputation as a dedicated teacher and advocate for the deaf. Keller, in turn, was a deaf-blind woman who refused to be defined by her physical limitations and went on to become a writer, lecturer, and lifelong activist for those with disabilities. Coming up, we'll explore how Bell's work brought Helen Keller to his doorstep. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight 
starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. As a Scottish boy in Edinburgh, Alexander Graham Bell grew up in a house obsessed with sound. Alexander's father, Melville, was a speech pathologist. The human voice, from its origin to its mechanics and ability, fascinated the young Bell boys. And critically, Alexander's mother, Eliza Bell, was deaf. When the family hosted parties, the boys entertained guests by performing acts of ventriloquism or by imitating animal sounds. They crowed like roosters and clucked like hens. Alexander, known as Alec, was particularly taken with sound, noticing when even the buzzing of a bee seemed muffled. But there was another use for Alec's gift with sound, communicating with his mother Eliza. Alec found that if he deepened his voice and spoke close to his mother's forehead, she could understand the vibrations like spoken language. He also learned the manual alphabet, that is, sign language for each letter. When guests came to the bell house and the dining room was filled with conversation, Alec sat with his mother, silently translating all that was said. At the time, deaf people were widely considered less mentally acute than their hearing counterparts. But Alec knew his relationship with his mother was clear proof that wasn't true. His childhood prompted a lifelong interest in the science of sound. It famously led him to the invention of the telephone and the phonograph. But it also inculcated in him a special tenderness towards the deaf. Inspired by his father Melville's great project called Visible Speech, which was a visual catalog of every sound man could make, Bell soon began teaching deaf students how to speak. The young man found that the visible speech system, because it described the shape a mouth should make, helped improve the pronunciation of deaf students. Bell taught with what's called the oral method, which was widespread in Europe. Instead of teaching sign language, as they did in most schools for the deaf in the United States, Bell taught lip-reading and speech. He believed that lip-reading made it easier for deaf people to become fully integrated into society. However, he had to pause his new endeavor when the family decided to leave the United Kingdom for New Brunswick, Canada in 1870. To support his family, Melville Bell began traveling around the northeastern United States lecturing about visible speech. A year later in Boston, he struck up a relationship with Sarah Fuller, the principal of the recently established Boston School for Deaf Mutes. The school was unusual for America. It taught the oral method rather than sign language. And Sarah Fuller was keen to know more about how the visible speech system could help deaf pronunciation of English. Shortly after, Alec's old energy and enthusiasm called him back to work. So Melville arranged for his son to come down to Boston from Canada for a month to teach at Fuller's school. There, Bell proved himself as a gifted teacher. Just a year later, he founded the School of Vocal Physiology and Mechanics of Speech in Boston. It was the start of an illustrious career teaching deaf students in America and inventing speaking machines on the side. 
By 1876, Bell filed a patent for the first workable telephone. He left his Boston school for the deaf and dedicated his focus to his inventions full-time, though he kept on two private deaf students. One was Mabel Hubbard, who would eventually become Bell's wife. The couple would have two daughters together, but when his own daughters were just six and eight years old, another little girl arrived in Bell's life. In 1886, Captain Arthur Keller and his six-year-old daughter Helen knocked on the door of the infamous inventor. Keller was a pretty girl with dark curls and a pink frock, but one of her eyes bulged strangely and the other wandered. Bell came down from his study to greet the pair at the door. He shook Captain Keller's hand, then knelt to introduce himself to the little girl. She lifted her small hands and explored every inch of his nose, mustache, and beard before moving on to his collar, tie, and watch chain. He was immediately captivated by her curiosity and her fearlessness. Bell led Helen and the captain to the parlor, where he gave the child his pocket watch to hold. He set it to chime so that she could feel the vibrations. Her face, which had been blank for the entirety of the introduction, soon revealed the slightest hint of a smile. It had been a long road for Helen to Bell's doorstep. At less than two years old, she was stricken with an unknown illness, likely scarlet fever or meningitis. Though she made a remarkable recovery, Keller returned to health deaf and blind. Locked in a dark, silent world before she'd even learned to listen and speak, Helen became increasingly untamable. As she grew, she showed little promise to be taught. But one day, her mother Kate came across a surprising piece of information in Charles Dickinson's American Notes. In the mid-19th century, the Boston-based doctor Samuel Gridley Howe had taught a deaf-blind woman named Laura Bridgman rudimentary speech. At that point, Dr. Howe was already dead, but this gave the mother renewed hope that perhaps Helen could be educated after all. First, Kate sent her husband Arthur, along with Helen, to a doctor in Baltimore. The Baltimore surgeon, though, quickly realized he would not be able to help the little girl recover her sight. He suggested instead that Arthur Keller reach out to the famous inventor Alexander Graham Bell. He told Arthur that he was known to never turn away a deaf person who came to him for help. In hopes Bell might recommend a teacher, Arthur Keller brought his daughter to Bell's home in Washington, D.C. There was an immediate connection between Bell and the deaf-blind child. Helen wrote later that she felt certain he understood her and, quote, loved him immediately. At that first meeting, when she tired of playing with the inventor's watch, Helen leapt from his knee and began exploring the entirety of the library with her hands. Bell watched her exploring her new surroundings by touch and marveled at her curiosity and intelligence. He assured Captain Keller that his daughter was educable after all. And he recommended that Arthur reach out to Boston's Perkins Institution for the Blind. The Perkins Institution soon sent a former student, Anne Sullivan, to the Keller Plantation in Tuscumbia to be Helen's teacher. It was the beginning of another dedicated, lifelong relationship. Though it wouldn't be easy, Sullivan had no training for teaching a deaf-blind child, 
the pair would muddle through their ups and downs together. And the challenge was made harder by Helen's tantrums. Locked in her own body and unable to communicate, Helen frequently flew into rages. She threw food and utensils, screamed, thrashed, overturned furniture, even knocked out her new teacher's front tooth. Because Arthur Keller couldn't stand to see his daughter disciplined, Sullivan later took Helen to live with her in a cottage on the plantation's grounds. There, they'd have hours-long tussles in which Sullivan tried to get the child to fold a dinner napkin. But table manners were just one exercise to keep the duo communicating. In fact, Sullivan spoke to Helen all day long. Using the manual alphabet, she pressed letters into Helen's palm. She wrote about anything that came to mind. Flowers, clouds, trees, books, thoughts, ideas. And the bright little girl wrote back, mimicking the letters and the words, even though she didn't totally understand them. She was close to a breakthrough. One day, after Helen's hand was placed beneath a water pump, Sullivan spelled water into her palm. Suddenly, Helen realized that the letters were connected to the sensation of the cool liquid. Helen had done what many deemed impossible, learned a language. With the means to communicate, the once untamable child became affectionate and calm. She was completely dedicated to learning. Helen's intellect was fierce and her curiosity boundless. In under a month, she could spell 400 words. In less than three months, still at just six years old, she could write a letter without help. After half a year, she had mastered reading Braille, not to mention addition, subtraction, and multiplication. One of the first letters she wrote was, of course, to Alec Bell. She boasted proudly that she could write and spell and count. She even recalled playing with his watch during their first meeting in Washington. Helen's confidence was growing, and she'd soon be ready to take the next step in her education. Coming up, Helen and her mentor, Alexander Graham Bell, go on the road together. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. After meeting six-year-old Helen Keller, Alexander Graham Bell, a longtime advocate for the deaf, stayed in close contact with the bright young girl. He followed Helen's development with great interest, taking a personal and even paternal pride in her accomplishments. To communicate with her, Bell learned the American manual alphabet and Braille. He was a constant source of support for both Helen Keller and her teacher, Anne Sullivan. He put a great deal of effort into raising money for Helen's education. He occasionally provided the pair with funds directly, such as when Helen's father died in 1896. In 1890, Sullivan took 10-year-old Helen Keller to the Perkins Institution for the Blind in Boston. There, for the first time, Keller experienced the revelation of feeling like she belonged. 
Perkins was a place where she felt she could finally be amongst her peers and communicate independently. It was also there that she learned an extraordinary new talent. Helen could read lips by resting her fingertips on the mouth of a speaker. With her left hand, she touched the mouth of her interlocutor. With her right, she spelled out her replies with the manual alphabet. Thanks largely to Bell's guidance, Keller moved into the public eye at a young age. He quickly realized that her story and her endearing appearance was an incredible opportunity for the advancement of knowledge about deaf education. Two years later, when she was eight years old, Bell gave a picture of her and a letter she'd written to a New York newspaper. Nearly overnight, she became a national celebrity. Many idealized Keller and Sullivan's work together as miraculous and called Keller an angel. But Bell insisted that their cause, while no less incredible, was the result of methodical, hard work. It could be applied to other cases as well. Helen was proving to be a charming, poised, and well-adjusted child. Bell believed that by having her live as much as possible like a hearing person, society would be forced to confront its expectations of what a deaf and blind person could achieve. The attention could help them address the overall lack of knowledge about deafness and blindness. In an effort to fill those gaps, Bell studied deaf communities and convinced the U.S. Census Bureau to use the term deaf rather than deaf-mute on the census. He hoped this specificity might gather more accurate data on the number of deaf people in the country. Bell also took his research into a new realm by studying hereditary deafness for the Massachusetts State Board of Health. He found that deaf parents were more likely to have deaf children, and deaf people were more likely to have deaf partners. As he learned more, he founded his own institute, named the Volta Bureau, near his laboratory. He hoped this new center might contribute to the increase and diffusion of knowledge relating to the deaf. When deciding who should break the ground of the new building, he had only one person in mind, Helen. Throughout the 1890s, Bell continued lecturing and campaigning for the oral approach in deaf education so that deaf people might more easily assimilate into society. As an example of this approach, Bell pointed to his wife, Mabel, who had gone deaf following a fever at five years old. Mabel had never gone to a school specifically for people with disabilities. Instead, she had learned to read lips and speak so clearly that most people didn't even realize she was deaf. She appeared to be like any other Boston society woman. Partly informed by Mabel's experience and partly by his mother's, Bell became more vocal in his opposition to sign language. To him, it cordoned off deaf communities, where oralism allowed them to become fully integrated in hearing society. Helen even accompanied him on demonstrations of the possibilities of oralism, on stage, holding her fingers to the famous inventor's lips as he spoke. She became one of the key players of his public agenda. While the debate between sign language and oralism was of great interest in the U.S. at the time, unfortunately, Bell's continued research into hereditary deafness prompted him to take an even more extreme and unforgivable position. 
He suggested that sign language, by making marriages between deaf people more common, also fostered a growing deaf population. In short, he believed that deafness could be eradicated by eugenics, once going so far as to muse that deaf people might be forbidden from marrying one another. For all his positive ideas, this stance would forever tarnish Bell's reputation in the deaf community. Which was a complicated position for Keller to be in. Because she was also blind, Bell's extreme beliefs on sign language didn't necessarily apply to her. In her teens by that point, Keller loved Bell and had benefited from his knowledge and attention for most of her life. So she took a more forgiving view of his extreme beliefs than many other deaf advocates. Bell took Keller and Sullivan on fundraising tours for schools for the deaf and even to the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Wherever they went, Keller impressed crowds with her abilities, changing their minds about what the deaf could accomplish. At a time when people with disabilities were usually hidden away, Keller demonstrated that a deaf person could be an active member of hearing society. Bell encouraged Keller's zeal for performance and gave her her first experiences in front of an audience. Keller loved it. At heart, she was a writer and a showman. She had her own eyes replaced with striking blue glass eyes that awed her audience with their lifelike sparkle. On stage, she radiated joy and elegance. Urged by Bell's beliefs and her abilities, Keller decided to leave her school for the deaf at 14 to integrate into a non-specialized school. She began attending the Cambridge School for Young Ladies in Massachusetts, where Ann Sullivan spelled the lectures into her hand. At 18, after taking the same college entrance exam as her hearing and seeing peers, she began at Radcliffe College, the all-female annex of Harvard University. It was a monumental accomplishment for a deafblind woman in 19th century America. Keller kept moving forward. At 22, she published her first autobiography, The Story of My Life. She dedicated it to, quote, Alexander Graham Bell, who has taught the deaf to speak and enabled the listening ear to hear speech from the Atlantic to the Rockies. Together, she and Bell continued raising awareness about deafness and deaf education. Helen actively put herself out in the world to show that people with disabilities could live full and meaningful lives. And Bell made sure all eyes were on her as she did it. Their personal relationship continued to flourish as well. After spending many days at the Bell estate as a child, swimming and even climbing the barn roofs with Bell's children, Keller continued to visit the family at home as a young woman. There, she passed the evenings in long conversations with Alec Bell on the porch overlooking the lake. One night, while the two of them enjoyed the breeze coming off the lake, Bell spoke about the many unexpected twists his own life had taken, he then said to Keller, There are unique tasks waiting for you, a unique woman. The more you accomplish, the more you will help the deaf everywhere. He also spoke of his hope that Keller would have a happy marriage and a family, not unlike hopes a father might share with his own daughter. 
Keller remembered this moment later as evidence of Bell's conviction that disability shouldn't prevent her or anyone from partaking in any aspect of the human experience. And she took to heart his conviction that she could achieve change for the deaf and blind through advocacy work. Still, she dismissed his hopes for her marriage as impractical. She was perhaps slightly more of a realist about 19th century norms than he. Still outside the realm of marriage, Helen would go on to have experiences that many able people would never attempt. She rode horses and mastered German, French, Latin, and Greek. She learned to dance in time to the foxtrot and waltz, and she embarked on a career as a writer and speaker that would change history for people with disabilities of all kinds. Coming up, Helen Keller takes Alexander Graham Bell's place as a tireless advocate for the blind and deaf. And now back to the story. Backed by Alexander Graham Bell's support and friendship, and Anne Sullivan's tireless dedication, Helen Keller graduated cum laude from Harvard's Radcliffe College in 1904. The three of them continued to make public appearances together, as well as maintain their private relationship. Keller's optimism and enthusiasm, as well as the dedicated support of people like Bell and Sullivan, solidified her resolve that she could make a difference in how society regards people with disabilities. After her graduation, Keller steadily built a career writing and speaking about being deaf and blind, relying on the performance skills she'd learned on early tours with Bell. Keller was a tireless advocate, even when she found herself fielding rude questions like, do you close your eyes when you sleep? She replied with grace and humor. Her stock response was, I've never stayed awake to find out. She became the lead fundraiser for the American Foundation for the Blind, going on lecturing tours around the country. She remained a counselor to the foundation until her death. But after the years Keller had spent with Bell teaching the public about deaf education and integration, she wanted to take her work a step further. She wanted to talk about deaf and blindness prevention. Keller's America was a far cry from the one we inhabit now. She noticed that disabilities like blindness and deafness were far more common among the poor than the wealthy. As she continued her research, it was clear that this was due to a slew of reasons. Unequal access to medical care and child care, unsanitary and crowded conditions in urban slums, and the lack of sexual education and reproductive health care. The other leading causes of disability were workplace and industrial accidents, especially in factories where profit was prioritized over the safety of employees. Keller recalled her approach in 1912, saying, Step by step, my investigation of blindness led me into the industrial world. It was the era of factories and machines, coal furnaces and steam power. Children as young as seven were working in factories and mines. Occupational safety and worker protection were concepts that didn't yet exist. And once an impoverished person became disabled, they were ostracized and forgotten. The blind and deaf were shunted off to dark, oppressive institutions that lacked access to any kind of education or opportunity. In these places, they lived and worked out their remaining days in silent, unrelenting poverty. 
Keller's work led her to the inescapable conclusion that poverty was a root cause of deafness and blindness. The realization prompted her to become not only a tireless advocate for the blind, but also for all the poor and marginalized. She helped found the American Civil Liberties Union, or ACLU. She was also a prominent ally of the nascent NAACP. In addition to the story of my life, Keller had published an additional two books by the time she'd turned 33. It was mostly through her writing that she earned a living. But after World War I, the royalties from her literary work could no longer support both her and Anne Sullivan. So Helen looked for another way to tell her story. Finally, she settled on the method Bell had taught her. She took to the stage. Harry and Herman Weber, a pair of vaudeville entrepreneurs, gave Keller and Sullivan a 20-minute act. The curtains parted to reveal a prim, sun-filled living room with a garden visible through French windows. Mendelssohn's spring song trilled in the background. Sullivan began the show by telling the audience a little of Keller's life story. Then the star came in and spoke to the audience herself. The act was a remarkable success and ran for four full years between 1920 and 1924. At the time of Keller's death, the obituary in the New York Times noted that no Radcliffe graduate ever did better in variety than she. Throughout all of these years, Bell continued to be a dedicated supporter of Keller. When she wrote to him, requesting that he join her on stage at the Waldorf Astoria to translate her remarks, the famous inventor abandoned his labs and took the train up from Washington at once. Though he did have to draw the line somewhere, such as when he declined to portray himself in the movie of Helen's life, Deliverance, Nevertheless, Bell and Keller remained close friends until his death. After Bell passed away in 1922, Keller continued the advocacy work that had become her full-time occupation. Before World War II, she and Anne Sullivan went on a series of lecture tours that took them around the world a total of seven times. Everywhere Helen went, she argued and demonstrated the humanity of people with disabilities. And she did it while reminding those that didn't understand disability that the deaf and blind deserve the same rights as their peers. On top of all this, Keller continued to write, not just about her own life, but also about socialist politics and capitalism, industry barons and the impoverished, racial inequality, culture and literature. Keller was instrumental in changing the conditions to which the deaf and blind were still condemned in the United States in the early 20th century. By lobbying in Washington, she ensured the passage of laws that still benefit the blind and near-blind today. She was responsible for laws that required libraries to carry books in Braille, as well as assuring additional Social Security benefits for those with loss of vision. She even convinced Congress to pass additional rehabilitation services for wounded veterans. But it's possible that in addition to her concrete victories, Alexander Graham Bell was correct in one aspect. Helen's life story and her achievements may have done more to change people's minds about disability than the passage of any law. 
Today, the story of my life, her first autobiography, is still a standard on middle school reading lists. While Helen's legacy is assured, Bell's work for the deaf is generally disregarded in light of his promotion of eugenics. And though Bell's promotion of oralism was mostly well-intended, it took into account only the experiences of the deaf with whom he personally had a relationship, people like his mother, wife, his students, and of course, Helen. He didn't understand the freedom that even Keller had experienced when she first went to Perkins Institute as a child of 10, when she first felt as if she belonged. The debate between manualism and oralism in deaf education continues to this day. Many disabled and deaf activists and community members believe that the ability to learn and use sign language is a question of human rights. Still, while his legacy as an advocate for the deaf is deeply problematic, Bell also lobbied for rights that protected those with disabilities during his lifetime. His dedication to a more accessible world for everyone remains clear. And his lifelong friendship and support of Helen Keller is another legacy he leaves behind. Keller's and Bell's lives were radically different, but together they worked to improve the lives of deaf and disabled Americans. Keller's life and legacy forever altered public attitudes towards those with disabilities. And that life, she wrote later, started when Alexander Graham Bell took her hand. Though there's still much work to be done to fully support disability justice and provide clear access to the opportunities that Keller and Bell fought for, the impact of their friendship is clear. They'd be proud of the changes that their work has made possible. Thanks for listening. You can find all episodes of Obituaries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode on the linked legacies of two groundbreaking iconoclasts. Obituaries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Obituaries was written by Maud Doyle, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Brian Petrus and Haley Milliken. Obituaries stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 